0: Welcome to Pop to the Lou, where we share hilarious, embarrassing, heartbreaking, and inspiring stories of living life with IBD. This is purely for entertainment purposes. This is not medical, health, or even life advice. So do not take anything we say seriously. And welcome to episode 20 of Pop to the Lou. I can't believe we're actually on episode 20 already. That has gone by so quickly. This week's episode is actually one of my favorites thus far. We sat down with Dr. Harry Thomas and discussed all things IBD. Just to give you a bit of a background on Dr. Thomas, he graduated from the University of Cambridge with a degree in natural sciences and received a medical degree from the University of Oxford. In addition, he received his master's degree in public health from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. After serving as a house officer in the UK National Health Service, he completed his internship and residency in medicine and fellowship in gastroenterology. I can never say that word. You'd think after seeing so many gastro doctors, I could actually say it. Anyways, receive that. <laughs> Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School, both of which are in Boston. He moved to Austin, Texas in 2014, where he still resides. And he serves on the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation Austin Leadership Board and is chair of the Austin Mission Committee.
1: What a background, basically. What a <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: background. Impressive.
1: <laughs> if anyone wants to feel I something. can't even say
0: the words. Yeah.
1: <laughs> We really hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed filming it. We absolutely love sitting down with Dr. Harry Thomas. He was so open, forward thinking, kind, compassionate, and just such an amazing clinician that I think Sarah would love to go and be treated by him personally. I'm considering moving to Texas. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Harry Thomas. We loved interviewing you, and the topics that we covered were so, so interesting.
0: Let's get into it.
1: Harry, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Glad to be here. Nice to meet you both and uh, look forward to chatting.
1: Absolutely. You having a nice weekend so far?
2: Yes, it's been good. It's been unseasonably cold here in Texas. It was like 30 degrees Fahrenheit this morning, which is very unusual for Texas at uh, any time of the year, especially in March. Things should be warming up for next week, which is spring break.
1: I've been to the States for spring break many a time, Harry.
2: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I won't ask any more.
1: I've got the wrinkles <laughs> to show for it. <laughs> why did you Why did you choose to go into kind of gastrospecialism? So, actually,
2: when I was a medical student, getting close to the end of med school, I got the chance to work with a professor of gastroenterology who had pretty much dedicated his uh, life and research to patients with Crohn's and colitis. And uh, he was a great mentor and he was probably one of the big factors. I was interested in immunology from uh, undergraduate studies and the opportunity to think about how the immune system goes awry in patients with Crohn's and colitis seemed like a good fit my kind of uh, scientific interests and clinical interests. And it's a great specialty. It's a nice combination of um, different things, uh, people with you know, benign conditions, cancer, uh, Acute conditions, chronic conditions, it's a real variety. We get to form pretty long lasting relationships with some of our patients and uh, in other cases, uh, see them in the hospital for more acute conditions. Um, we get to do uh, procedures, endoscopies, colonoscopies, that was, uh, in addition to seeing patients in the clinic. So it's a really nice mixture, and I'm very happy to be a oncologist And,
1: and you, I think I remember seeing when we were doing a bit of research early, earlier, do you specialise in adults?
2: Yes, yeah, yeah, I really only see the adults. Uh, how the training tends to work in uh, the US as well as I think most other places is you do your primary training and either adult medicine, pediatrics, and then you specialize from there. Now, there are some people who take care of both adults and children, including some subspecialists,
1: We kind of talk quite a lot on the podcast about kind of the non-medical side, I guess, of Crohn's and colitis and how Sarah and I have kind of tried to manage our symptoms with things such as nutrition and stress management, sleep management, kind of keeping ourselves busy, having a purpose. How much do you kind of incorporate that into your treatment of individuals?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I would say that this is a big area of kind of mismatch between what patients are interested in and what they end up hearing from their doctors or other providers when they go to the clinic. And it is a source of frustration for a lot of patients. You know, probably one of the big things is diet. You know, patients want to know about diet, but a lot of the times the advice and recommendations they get from their uh, providers, they feel to be lacking. Uh, But that also goes for other other kind of um, factors beyond medications, like you mentioned, stress management, sleep, coping mechanisms. And a lot of it is because we don't always have the time to go into all of those other factors, in addition to the you know, medical factors and checking labs and that kind of thing in the context of you know relatively short visits. So it is It is very important, but one that does sometimes get overlooked and can lead to some frustration, I definitely recognize that.
0: Would you recommend for individuals, because I do appreciate, like we see it from the patient side and wanting that time with you, but obviously you have an extensive list of patients that you see. Where do you recommend that we do get more information when we're looking into the nutritional side or the stress management? There's so much false information out there as well, which can be extremely toxic. So do you have any recommendations on where to, find good quality information.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I definitely still would start with your doctor or um, healthcare provider as the first step. But for more information, there are many other sources. So for example, dietitians, especially people who specialize in these diseases rather than general dietitians who may not have that much specific knowledge about the kinds of studies that have been done in patients with Crohn's and Colitis, for example. And then some of the patient-based organizations. So in the US, the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, and then obviously they have kind of sister societies around the world. They're probably the best resource that I can think of, and they have a lot of great information on their website and then I think some other uh, patient-based societies and other countries do provide good quality information so those are probably the big ones now then you know there is a lot of misinformation as well and so yeah just knowing where to get advice on the internet is is important but I I would say places like the Crohn's Colitis Foundation are a very good uh, place to start
0: yeah absolutely it's
1: really difficult isn't it and I think you're right because you can go to dietitians and nutritionists that sometimes still maybe the kind of meal plans that they would prescribe or advise wouldn't necessarily be right for someone with an IBD as well. We've we've kind of spoken about that extensively, Sarah, haven't we? That, you know, we would love to incorporate loads of fruits and vegetables and legumes into our diet, but we can't digest them or we can't, you know, they, they can cause us quite a lot of discomfort. So I guess you're right. That's a really good point. You know, if you look for a dietitian or nutritionist, actually someone who does specialise in in IBD, because you again need that specialism a little bit more, don't you?
2: Yeah. uh, And at the very least, a dietitian who um, specialises in patients with gastrointestinal disorders, potentially including some of these. um, I think that can really help a lot. And to be honest, it can be difficult finding someone and especially someone who is covered by your health insurance or supplement, which is a huge issue in the states so it, it can be a challenge but at least asking your provider for some recommendations as to people to uh, contact and see consultation with them.
1: have you noticed anything with regards to covid in relation to Um, the treatment of anyone with Crohn's and colitis?
2: Yeah, so, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, we were, you know, all especially concerned about our patients with Crohn's and colitis because many of our patients are on immunosuppressing medications. And so we were worried that they would be at higher risk for COVID. And so there have been... You know, these big kind of cohort studies of patients with Crohn's and colitis starting in 2020 to see if they were at increased risk of getting COVID, having bad outcomes with COVID. And overall, the results were relatively reassuring. It showed that our patients were actually faring generally quite well, similar to the general population. That being said, it did look like patients on high doses of steroids, for example, were not doing quite as well. But our patients on biologics were actually doing a little better than many of us had feared. And then, you know, in the next phase of the pandemic, when the vaccines were rolling out, we were very concerned about how our patients were, were going to respond to the vaccination. So then more studies were done on that. And again, the results looked generally pretty good. I mean, our patients, even on some of the anti-TNF agents, for example, are able to mount pretty good levels of antibodies in response to the vaccinations. Mm-hmm. But what we do know now with time is after you know several months, the antibody levels in our patients on Titans do diminish faster than our patients who are not on those medications. Oh. Um, and so that has been part of the reason we recommend when I say we uh, our community in general, our professional community recommended an additional dose or a third dose of mRNA vaccines, so like the Pfizer vaccine, or the vaccine, to complete the primary series, which for regular uh, people, not on these medicines, is considered to be two doses, but for our patients on anti tns and some of the medicines, we recommend that three doses for the primary series. And now, you know, obviously, the, the general population has also been recommended to have that third dose as a booster rather than as an additional dose but now we're recommending our immunocompromised patients actually get a fourth dose so a booster to their three dose initial series and so many of our patients have now gotten that and are in the process of getting it so Yeah, our patients have been studied uh, carefully through the course of the pandemic, but thankfully have generally been doing pretty well. Now, immunocompromised obviously is a respected for poor outcomes and, uh, you know, unfortunately, some people have not done as well. And so we're still, you know, urging caution, uh, especially now as um, many areas of the States, for example, I know in the UK, um, a lot of the kind of prevention or mitigation measures have been relaxed. But generally, I think many of us are still recommending our patients exercise a little more caution in terms of masking and such, because the, the rates are still pretty high, based on yeah. rates in the US at least.
1: I was thinking as well, in relation to people kind of not accessing healthcare as a result of COVID, and I wonder how many kind of people, especially with kind of symptoms of Crohn's or colitis, may not have gone to the GP as they may have done, or even they have gone to the GP, but they haven't been, you know, sent on to further kind of investigations as a result of of COVID as well. So it'd be interesting to know what kind of statistics are there as well. Yes,
2: yeah, that's a very good point. And I haven't seen specific studies or papers about that yet, but I'm sure they're going to be coming down the road. I mean, we are seeing some patients who, for example, put off regular, you know, colonoscopies for screening, Uh, you know, uh, people without IBD, just in general, when you turn you know, 45 or 50. And we have seen, I mean, the rates drop significantly in 2020. I mean, hardly anyone was getting these routine screenings done. And so, anecdotally, we have seen some cases of patients presenting. And then with symptoms and turning out to have uh you know major issues colon cancer and such when perhaps they could have been picked in an earlier stage if we didn't have COVID back in 2020 so there definitely are anecdotes and reports of uh, those kinds of situations and i'm sure we will see more data and potential regarding Crohn's and colitis as well i think many patients did put off care uh, absolutely and you know one thing we try and stress is even At the beginning of the pandemic, when a lot of us were doing telehealth and such, we still were, you know, trying to do our best to take care of patients, do procedures when necessary for for people with active symptoms. Um, And definitely at this point, we're encouraging people, you know, catch up with the regular diagnostics and screenings.
1: I think it's encouraging people to get back into the swing of things like that, isn't it? Because I know quite a lot of people that I know, whether it's professional or personal, um, they still haven't got that confidence to maybe do everything that they were doing previously, isn't it? I think quite a lot of people have got that anxiety still. I guess it's promoting everything again, isn't it? starting from scratch.
0: There was one item that I wanted to ask about because I know it's here in Australia, in Adelaide at least. I think Canada's trialing it as well, but I'm not sure about the States in terms of the fecal matter transplant. I think that's what it's called
2: is that what it's called? Yeah, uh, FMT or fecal microbiota transplantation.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't close remember set. that. Yeah, I was so close. <laughs> so
2: close. Yeah, so FMT or stool transplants for short sure, has been shown to be extremely effective for the treatment of a certain gastrointestinal infection called C. diff or C. difficile. It's close to 100% effective at curing uh, patients with recurrent C. diff where they keep on getting the infection, which can be really just a uh, horrible condition. And so there's been a lot of interest in using FNT for the treatment of our patients with Crohn's and colitis, as well as some other the IBD conditions, the, sorry, other GI conditions. Unfortunately, we're still not there yet in terms of routine clinical usage, it has been studied. Uh, we're not so sure about Crohn's, but we do have some evidence to show that it can be somewhat effective in patients with UC. And actually, those, some of the studies did come from Australia. But the difference compared with C diff, where we just do you know one infusion and they're done, is in UC it tends to be a little more complicated. Frequently, uh, patients do need multiple rounds of the FMT instilled on a certain protocol uh, to be successful. And they're still trying to understand exactly what kind of donor stool make the best kind of um, uh, material for the transplantation. So there's a lot of interest in that preliminary data do look somewhat encouraging, but it's still not something we're using routinely for patients. with yeah. And not really using it for any other conditions yet. Now, the other thing that's um, uh, happening is the use of uh, basically encapsulated uh, microbiota preparation. So instead of administering the stool as enema or uh, through the colonoscopy to actually take it in a capsule formulation. And those have been studied by various groups and companies and uh, hopefully will be studied in UC Crohn's as well.
0: Now I could attempt to explain what that is for people that don't know, but (laughs) I feel like you would do a better job if you don't mind explaining just what it is exactly. Yeah,
2: so I mean, basically the... General stool transplant is relatively crude. They take uh, stool from donors and make sure they're not transmitting any um, harmful bacterial pathogens. And we just uh, instill that through a colonoscopy into the patient's colon. But the goal is to find either the bacteria or the combination of bacteria that is really responsible for the cure and then to you know, put that in a capsule so that patients can just take it by mouth, you know, maybe for a few days or weeks uh, to do the job. And uh, so that is an area of intense study. It's not something that we're yet doing clinically, but hopefully we'll We'll reach that point in the next few years.
1: Would there be an issue with people swallowing a capsule if they're finding things hard to digest?
2: Not really. A lot of our medications are in the form of capsules, so yeah. it's generally not an issue. And they can also be encapsulated in such a way that they kind of release in different parts of the GI tract. Uh, so that's why they can be helpful. In general, that shouldn't be a major issue. It's more a case of finding out which are the bacteria that really do carry the benefit, and yeah. you know, trying to have them in a capsule formulation that avoids the need for any you know invasive procedures?
0: I asked because I looked into it. Oh gosh, probably a couple of years ago when I started going to flare again, not wanting to go back onto biologicals. I was looking into that. And it, like I said, I'm in Australia, so it is an option-ish here, but I was too far gone. So apparently you need to be at a certain state of the disease as well. I think you need to be quite stable where I was past that point, but I am. it's piqued my interest because I don't understand much about the microbiome in your stomach and all of the studies into that, but that seems to be really linked to ulcerative colitis as well as other health issues. Yeah,
2: no, it absolutely is. And I think that's really... You know one of the biggest um, set of questions in our field about how to really understand you know which bacteria causing the issues and how we can modulate that using probiotics or uh, stool transplantation or other uh, mechanisms. And there's so much interest, but unfortunately in 2022 we're still not that effective at you know manipulating our microbiome in an efficient way. There are tons of probiotic companies and pre probiotics and all kinds of people claiming they're able to cure all kinds of things using these um, microbiome manipulations, but we're we're still not there yet, unfortunately. We do have some situations where we do recommend a specific probiotic for a specific uh, issue, but we'd love to be better and be able to fine-tune it for the patient's condition.
0: Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's relatively new in the medical industry, at least in the Western world, isn't it, in terms of studying the microbiome?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're still trying to understand it. Um, the, The interest has really been in the last 10 years or so. So we've gotten to the point now where we're pretty good at being able to study people's microbiomes now in the lab, not in the clinic so much. But the question now is, it's a little bit chicken or egg. I mean, does this patient with Crohn's have this kind of funky looking microbiome because of their Crohn's? Or is that what caused their Crohn's in the first place? And we're still trying to tease that apart. It's it's, it's a little difficult. So we're, we're very good at studying it, but we're, we're not that good at really identifying the causes and then figuring out how best to treat the patient. Many patients in the US, at least, I'm not sure about, Australia, and the UK, uh, but they uh, they'll do their own microbiome profiling through companies that at oh, the time, and, you know, Facebook and yeah, they spend uh, quite a bit of money getting those tests done, and they do produce a lot of uh, nice results. But it's still difficult for us as gastroenterologists to know really what to do with it. There are some bacteria that are clearly what we call pathogenic or harmful. For example, C. Diff, like mm. I mentioned. H Pallari, those ones we, we really know what to do with. But for a lot of the other ones, um these mild alterations and disturbances in the profile, we, it's its more difficult for us to know how to act on that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 10 years isn't actually that long in the big scheme of things. So maybe another 10 or so, we'll have some more answers. Are there any new, any new treatments or anything that's currently coming out on the market that you've seen a lot of success with? I know everyone's so different, but overall in general...
2: Yeah, I would say um, there's been really a lot of development over the last ten years. Um, I've been I've been in the field of gastroenterology for just over ten years, and when I first started as a fellow uh, or trainee, um, there were basically just anti um in terms of the biologics uh, for Crohn's and colitis, and there were you know three or four of them, and for our patients who weren't doing well on one, we would just switch them to the second one, and when they didn't do well on that, we would switch them to the third one. And then after that, there really weren't many other options outside of clinical trials. And so it it was unfortunate that we didn't have a lot of options. But now as a result of those clinical trials, we do have multiple new ways of treating Crohn's and colitis and different mechanisms, not just anti-TNFs, but different kinds of biologics and then some small molecules, so not even injections or infusions, but medications that can be taken orally. And so now we have uh, like four new mechanisms for patients with Crohn's and colitis just in the last um, 10 years. And um, we have two new medications that are almost certainly going to get FDA approved in the United States here later this year. And so it's great having additional options and it's it's good to be able to offer those to our patients. We're still looking for some sort of, you know, holy grail. I mean, you know, a medicine that's really, really effective and really tolerable with uh, minimal side effects. We're not quite there yet. And that's that's really the goal. I mean, ultimately, we want to find a cure. And that's the goal of the Gruntzogelitis Foundation, of course. There is much more work to be done.
1: Harry, why do you think that ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease are so difficult in relation to finding that cure? Like you said, the treatment plans are quite restricted still, probably, but, you know, it sounds really, really promising regarding the new medications. And I think that does provide people with some hope, doesn't it? Because like you said, when you go through a certain load of medications and you have really undesirable side effects, they're impacting your quality of life in so many other ways, maybe impacting other health systems, impacting your psychological health, whatever it might be and you're at, you you know, there's nowhere else to turn, that's really frustrating for the patient, isn't it? Is there any particular reason that it's, it's such a difficult area to kind of find those answers to?
2: Yeah, I think that's a great question. So, you know, we talk about IBD in general, but, you know, we already know it's not just IBD, it's Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis. And then there are some patients who have... Uh, Difficult to characterize disease, and we call it indeterminate colitis. Uh, that's maybe one in 10 of patients with IBD. But even among ulcerative colitis, for example, there are patients who just have inflammation in the rectum, just the ulcerative proctitis. There's this inflammation all the way around the colon. In Crohn's, there are patients who have colitis or ileitis, just in the small bowel, people who have both. Some people People with Crohn's have issues in their upper GI tract. So it's really an umbrella term for really probably multiple different diseases, you know. Mm-hmm. And we know from the genetic studies that have been done over the last 15, 20 years that there are over 250 places in the genome that are associated with Crohn's and colitis. Okay. So it's not just a single gene that's at fault. It's probably a combination of multiple genes in relation to some factors in the environment, diet obviously being a major consideration, and then these bacterial profiles in the gut and the re- the way our immune system reacts to those. So, you know, it's a very heterogeneous disease as opposed to, you know, just one cause in each person. And so I think that's part of the reason it's difficult to treat. Uh, even though you have a medicine like an anti that can be hugely effective for one person, that just may not be the mechanism and other people. And that's why many of our medications in the trials, it's hard to find a medicine that gets more than like 50% of people into remission. There's this kind of like therapeutic ceiling. almost, And, yeah. uh, you know, that is kind of depressing. Uh, and so we'd love to find some medicine that would for like you know 70 or 80% patients, that'd be great, but we're not quite there yet.
1: I guess it's really difficult as well, because like the patient, the person who's taking medication or having an operation is going to be really stressed, aren't they, they're going to be really anxious, they're going to be, you know, probably their whole routines out of whack, they're probably not sleeping, because they're in pain, they're probably not eating as well as they should be because they're in pain. So those things as well probably contribute to that kind of ability to recover as well, isn't it? So that's oh, yeah. so difficult. It's, it's, a, it's a vicious circle sometimes, isn't it?
2: Yes, it definitely is. And sometimes if we're able to identify some uh, therapy for some of those other issues, sleep, mood disorders, that can actually have a positive impact on their well-being and potentially can help with the underlying inflammation as well. So that's something we always try and do rather than focusing just on the GI tract.
0: I know you said it's kind of depressing in terms of the medication, not getting people into remission over like 50%. However, I find that oddly comforting because when medications weren't working for me, I didn't know that stat. And so I was like, what is wrong with me? Like, why is nothing working? And I was, every time I went to the doctor, we tried new medication, nothing was working. And even I felt like they were looking at me being like, what is wrong with you? Why isn't this working? And you kind of feel like your own guilt. So it's kind of in a way comforting to know that you're not, it's not you, it's the medication. And unfortunately it just doesn't work for everyone.
2: Yeah. That's very interesting. I mean, I think sometimes... Doctors might be a little reluctant to share that information up front as we, you know, we want to. Give things a positive spin and say, "Oh, you know, it's a great medicine." Which they are—they are great medicines, and they can really be hugely effective for uh, some people. But unfortunately, just not ever. And so, it's interesting what you bring up. I mean, there is this huge problem with uh, guilt and self-blame in patients with chronic disease in general, but I think especially in patients with IBD. You know, people thinking, "Oh, something I ate, and you know, something I did to myself, and stuff." So, I think we probably need to be a little better about managing expectations and setting expectations up front before even starting the therapy and definitely not have a situation where a patient thinks, you know, because the medicine didn't work that they did something wrong or, you know, they're like one of a million for not responding. Unfortunately, it's much more common.
0: Yeah, I understand your approach because you want to be optimistic. You want to give people hope. But I think after you try, I don't even know how many different medications, probably like eight or so that weren't working. It's like, okay, you obviously start to look inwards. I see both sides of it. But for me, that actually was really comforting. Yeah,
1: yeah, um, no, that's interesting. It's difficult though, isn't it? Because it's, it's like you said right at the start, Harry, actually, you've got a really short amount of time with these people that you're you know, creating a really therapeutic relationship with anywhere or trying to. And probably everything you want to explore with them, you can't because you've got this kind of time restrictions and resource restrictions, etc. So I can imagine that's really difficult from a clinician's point of view as well.
2: Yes, it is. Um And that's part of the reason I think it's very helpful, especially for a patient with newly diagnosed Crohn's and colitis to, plan to visit with them multiple times over the first few months, so that even if you don't have the chance to tackle everything on the first visit, which really no one can expect, uh, that you would come back to those issues on the second or third visit. I think just expecting that it's going to take a number of visits to kind of go over many of these issues.
0: That's true. I guess it depends on the country that you're in. In the States, is that, um, is it quite easy to Sorry, can you just actually tell us how it works in the states? We've never been in the medical system there.
2: I think one big difference from the UK, which I have uh, knowledge of uh, since I trained there, is that in in the UK generally patients are referred by a general practitioner to a specialist such as a gastroenterologist. But in the states, many patients will actually come straight to a gastroenterologist without even having seen a. a Wow. Every care physician or general practitioner. And so then, you know, they'll be seen in consultation, undergo the diagnostic testing, and then the follow up. One of the big differences is that, um, you know, I think a lot of patients uh, don't have the ability to see doctors or specialists because of, you know, insurance issues which is a major issue in the whole of the country, but especially in Texas, which is where I am, where like 20% of adults don't have health insurance. And wow. so in those situations, you know, they, they could be suffering and not feeling well, but never really are able to see anyone. And then, you know, things get to some crisis point, but they're just severely anemic or bleeding and they end up in the hospital. And that's when we first meet them on the call. And, you know, we do some of the diagnostics in the hospital and then, you know, try to arrange follow-up, but that follow-up can be challenging challenging uh, patients who don't have health insurance so uh, it can be a real challenge
0: yeah i can't imagine back to medication and i'm not sure again of the states i'm canadian by the way if my accent is throwing you off and you're like she does not sound australian i'm just in australia <laughs> um, but in canada they have legalized marijuana or cbd is it legal in texas as well i know different states have uh, different not in texas
2: it's legal in um several states in the u.s And so some patients do um, use it to manage some of their symptoms of Crohn's and colitis as well as other conditions, of course. And many patients, even in Texas, uh, where it's not legal, do ask about it. And generally, you know, we do advise that, you know, it could potentially help with some of the symptoms, you know, pain, nausea, diarrhea, but we don't yet have evidence showing that it really affects the underlying inflammation. And There have been reports shown that if you're basically just self-medicating with uh, medical marijuana, that even though you may be feeling relatively okay, that the inflammation kind of continues uh, uncontrolled, and those patients can sometimes end up needing surgery, you know, in an emergency type situation at higher rates than patients who've been, you know, on some regular protocol of medications. So. You know, it can potentially be used as an adjunctive therapy, but we don't really have evidence to show that it, it can be used as like a
0: primary
1: therapy. therapy. Yeah, I was d- diagnosed quite young, Harry. So I was always told by my nurses and the doctors, "Cast never start smoking, which I didn't listen to them. <laughs> <laughs> when I was younger, of course I didn't. I was a teenager and being a nightmare. Um, but because they always said smoking will aggravate your illness. So I guess... With the cannabis um, kind of avenue as well, I'm assuming, you know, if you're smoking it with normal tobacco, it might not help the symptoms as well.
2: Yes, absolutely. Uh, And thanks for mentioning that. Yeah, I mean, we we have very clear evidence that tobacco worsens Crohn's disease and, you know, it's got this um, kind of counterintuitive effect with ulcerative colitis where there may be some actual benefit of patients with UC. Uh, with smoking, although we don't recommend that,
1: of course,
2: But yeah, it, it clearly, it clearly does worsen Crohn's, and so yeah, uh, tobacco is is definitely a
0: separate issue. Interesting. Yeah. It's refreshing to speak with you and get. Actual information. Cause like I said, there's so much false information, especially on platforms like Instagram, Facebook, and stuff. And I even remember being so desperate at points. So I was looking for that information. And at one point, I was like boiling cabbage and drinking the water um, and doing wheatgrass shots and going for acupuncture. And none of this stuff works, but you get so desperate, you're willing to believe anybody. And you don't have your doctor on call that you can pick them up and be like, should I drink cabbage water? It's refreshing to get the actual truth. And it is. It's difficult to see how many people are spreading information about th- out there around. Oh, I can cure your IBD. I did it myself. Which I would presume people have just happened in whatever case to maybe get into remission, and so they're stable and they think they did it themselves through diet. Where it was either the medication they were on, or potentially, who knows, the disease did just kind of slow down for brief period of time.
2: Yeah, no, it's a a huge issue. I think sometimes it comes from a good place, you know, people's friends and family, you know, just want to do the best for their loved one. But yes, so many of our patients have heard all kinds of remedies from their friends and families that have no real evidence base. And um, I think a lot of people seem to think that they can cure these conditions with celery juice and stuff like that. Well, um, that would kill and, me. <laughs> and then the patients feel guilty, you know, about not trying it or doing it, not getting better. And it can be a huge issue. And I think it's it's very widespread wherever in the world you are. And then the more nefarious side of things is when patient, uh, people do these kind of protocols and charging absorptive, sums of money for it and yeah. uh, that, that's that's really worse and so it's very easy to get sucked into that uh, especially with social media. oh absolutely
1: awesome. like you said sarah when you're when you feel just you know in despair don't you and you're just in desperation to find something to help because nothing else has yeah um you're more, you're a bit more vulnerable, aren't you, to those things?
0: Yeah. And you want to kind of believe that people are good and wouldn't want to charge you a lot of money um, when they know they're (laughs) lying. But unfortunately, (laughs) there are people out there. So it's good to get actual information and facts that we can share with everyone.
1: Harry, is there anything that you would recommend for anyone who is newly diagnosed or even has been diagnosed as long as I have over 25 years when they're coming to an appointment, for example, I know quite a lot of people have reached out to us saying they're very nervous, they feel like they don't or listen to, or they get a bit anxious about what to ask, what not to ask. Is there any kind of anything you'd advise that would be you'd get the best out of an appointment with it with a kind of gastro specialist and you could advise someone to kind of prepare or do within an appointment or prior to?
2: I think if you're meeting someone that you uh, haven't met before, it's good to have in your mind or maybe even on a piece of paper just um, some key facts like, you know, when you were diagnosed, what medications you've tried in the past, dates of previous surgeries. those things can help to uh, make sure everyone's on the same page, for example. If it's someone that you already know and have a relationship with, then that's not uh, as important. I would say that having a list of questions prepared in advance, so many of my patients bring in lists of the questions and that is very helpful. Sometimes they'll just give it to me and I can quickly scan down the list and kind of uh, plan how i'm going to approach answering them and when to do it in our conversation so that that's helpful and i would encourage that if there's some topic that's perhaps a little more esoteric or unusual you could even consider contacting them ahead of time with it just so that they might do some uh, research about that specific question ahead of a visit uh, i'm always totally uh, open to uh, that kind of communication um, and then, yeah, just being free to answer questions that are pertinent to that patient. Um, I don't, um, I'd hate for patients to be kind of nervous about coming to see us. Um, and so I think if you have a Doctor or healthcare provider that you just don't feel that comfortable with, and you're not kind of following up with regularly, it may be worth considering, you know, getting another opinion. For example, finding someone who you have a better fit with. And at the end of the day, these are chronic diseases; we don't yet have a cure, and so it is important to have a good therapeutic relationship because you you might be seeing that person for you know decades.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we've always suggested, haven't we, Sarah? You know, if you could take an advocate or someone. You know, friend or family member to not speak on behalf of you, but maybe someone who can kind of support you with that appointment, I think very helpful as well
2: yes no that's a very good point um, during covid i know many medical offices haven't allowed people to bring in you know family members or other friends but i think now as things like onward are getting a little better many offices are kind of reverting to previous policies about visitors and stuff and so it's worth asking if you can bring someone along absolutely
0: even just having somebody that's not as involved that can absorb the information because sometimes if you're getting the bad news or you're getting diagnosed in that appointment and you get a lot of information it'd be quite overwhelming like a lot is going through your head at the same time so having someone else there that's kind of a bit more (laughs) of sound mind that can take it in and have a discussion with you after I think is quite helpful
2: definitely especially at that initial time of diagnosis that can be really helpful
0: oh it's been so lovely to speak to you
2: it's been great to speak to you all too
1: it's been really, really lovely. It's really, really informative. Is there anything you kind of want to end the kind of episode on in relation to your background or, you know, any final tips or advice you'd give to any of our amazing kind of listeners who have got this diagnosis and and maybe feeling a little bit kind of just in despair, basically, and, and just want to hear something positive if possible?
2: Absolutely. I mean, there are millions of people in in the world living with these conditions. And as opposed to many other diseases, I think um, a lot of the time people don't talk about their Crohn's or colitis with their co-workers, friends, family, as much as some of the conditions, for example. So it is very easy to feel like you're uh, kind of uh, dealing with this weird thing on your own. And so I think that's why it's so important to have other avenues for learning about these uh, conditions, such as this podcast, which I think is fantastic. I really appreciate everything you all are doing. Well, um, yeah. So that you know that there are other people out there like you, and I think it's nice that we have things like you know these uh, Facebook groups now and other things with social media that allow you to connect with other people who've been through similar situations. I would say that um, it's an exciting time to be taking care of patients with Crohn's colitis because we do have new treatment options. There are new ones coming in the pipeline very soon. So it's not like the old days where we really had limited options. It's really great to be able to offer new treatments uh, that can potentially get people better than where they've been in the past. I would reach out to uh, some of these uh, societies, Crohn's and Colitis Foundation being really the best one, I think, uh, in terms of providing quality information and also support groups. They have peer mentoring programs that can connect you with other people in similar situations. So there are a lot of resources out there. And uh, just know that you're not alone. And there are very many smart people working to find a cure. And hopefully that's going to happen you know, within a lot of lifetimes. Uh, but in the meanwhile, we're going to keep uh, trying to do everything we can to get you better and living a normal quality of life. And we have so many people who are able to do amazing things in their families and work lives with these conditions as well and so we're seeing better outcomes all the time which is which is really great.
1: That sounds lovely and um, can <laughs> I just say as someone who's met a lot of clinicians you're you're very very warm and very very approachable and you seem very open-minded to a lot of um, kind of suggestions and and different ways of, of maybe treating these illnesses which is really refreshing and quite oh, well, rare. Thank
2: you. Thank you. I appreciate that. feedback. I,
0: I, I kind of want you as my doctor. I just need to <laughs> <laughs> move to the other side of the world. But <laughs> Do you take on new patients? Like if we do have any listeners in the States that are in Texas, is that yes. an option?
2: Yes. Yeah. I'm based in Austin, Texas, but you know, now with telehealth, we're actually starting to see patients from, you know, different parts of the States and, and such. Yeah. Do take uh, new patients
1: Brilliant. Okay. Oh Perfect. amazing. Thank you. Oh, Enjoy your
0: weekend.
2: <laughs> Thanks, you all too. Take care.
0: Bye. Thank you, Harry. Bye. Bye. Well, thank you so much for tuning in. We have a lot of exciting interviews coming up. Definitely subscribe so you don't miss an episode and follow us on Instagram at Pop to the Loop podcast for a bit more content on a daily basis and some behind the scenes images. Yeah, everything will be linked in the description so you can find everything there. Love you guys. Love you.